Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am beyond excited to introduce my guests today, Dr. Betty Farrell and Dr. Martha Twaddle. Dr. Twaddle is a physician who currently serves as the Medical Director for Palliative Medicine and Supportive Care at Northwestern Medicine Lake Forest Hospital. Her academic work includes developing curriculum, guidelines, and models of care for healthcare professionals to provide care for the seriously ill in all settings. Dr. Betty Farrell is an RN, PhD, and 57 other things behind her name. She's been in nursing for quite a while. She's the director of the Division of Nursing Research and Education and a professor at City of Hope National Medical Center in California. And she's very well known as serving as the principal investigator for the End of Life Nursing uh, Education Consortium. Uh, She completed a master's in theology, ethics, and culture, and her PhD is in nursing. So ladies, welcome. I'm very excited to be with you today. Great to be with you, Lynn. Thank you. So Drs. Farrell and Twaddle served as co-chairs of the National Consensus Project Steering Committee that resulted in publication of the Clinical Practice Guidelines for Quality Palliative Care, the fourth edition. This was published by the National Consensus Project for Quality Palliative Care and the National Coalition for Hospice and Palliative Care. A Herculean effort to be sure, ladies. A lot of people were involved in this. I just want you to know that I did curricular mapping for our online Master of Science degree using these guidelines, so obviously I'm a big fan. Let's start at the top. So, Dr. Twaddle, maybe you could take this one. Why clinical practice guidelines for palliative care? Can't we all just agree to get along and do good things for patients and families? So I think we do agree. And so by doing, by having that agreement around it, we want to create a framework, uh, something that is durable, that helps uh, form clinical practice, best practice, that helps just like you did, create a framework around what should the educational curricula be for caring for seriously ill people. And guidelines go further to help support quality measures, the development of quality measures. They help in the policy and procedure at a local level for maybe a program, but they also help with policy at a large level like at CMS. Mm-hmm. And they end up informing program development and even payment. So having a framework like this really helps move the the field forward and helps create consistency. And what Betty and I get really excited about as well is it helps create accountability, ways of measuring accountability that people are doing the right thing for seriously ill people and their families. That's so important. And, you know, I noticed you said seriously ill people. So, Dr. Farrell, why did Dr. Twaddle just use that phrase? And in the guidelines, you all chose to say patients and families living with serious illness, not advanced illness or life-limiting illness. What's the scoop with that, and how do you define serious illness? Yes, I'm so glad you raised that issue because it is one of the most important new dimensions of the fourth edition of the guidelines. I think all of us in this field have lived you know, historically this uh, issue that, that really overshadows our practice, and that is both the good news and the bad news is that um, this field started with hospice care, and hospice, you know, is and remains a model of caring for people at the end of life. What we all know has happened since then uh, is because that was our origin, people still think that palliative care is also focused only at the end of life. And so we see this every day in our practice as 
there's hesitancy to refer people to palliative care until they're imminently dying. So we've tried all kinds of things over the last 20 years. You know, we've tried explaining, defining, encouraging, lots of models to say, no, palliative care needs to start at the point of diagnosis earlier, upstream. These are words that we've used. In this edition, um, we decided to take a different approach, building on certainly the work of many other scholars, Amy Kelly, uh, her colleagues at Mount Sinai, have published work where they've used this term serious illness. And the, the idea being, let's refocus on the patient. And the patients that we want to reach is really anyone living with a serious illness. And so when we're looking at a patient with in-stage heart disease, rather than arguing, you know, where are they in their trajectory, how close are they to dying, if we just step back and say, is in-stage heart disease a serious illness? Absolutely. Then there should be no hesitancy to get that patient uh, in palliative care. So I think it's, you know, it's more than just a new term. It really reframes how we think about the opportunities for palliative care. That's great. And to jump in, Lynn, if it's mm -hmm. okay, the, you know, Amy's definition uh, is serious illness is a health condition that carries a high risk of mortality and mm -hmm. either negatively impacts that person's ability to function on a day-to-day -day basis or their quality of life or excessively strains their caregiver. So this is a defined term. It, it is broad. It speaks to quality of life. And what we also love is it speaks to the impact that that person with serious illness, that they're not in, in isolation of those who love and care for them. And I think the definition is so important. We continue to struggle with practitioners knowing when it's time for hospice, let mm -hmm. alone what are the triggers for palliative care. So I really appreciate that. So you ladies were involved in the fourth edition. So how did this whole ball of wax get started? When did the guidelines first come to be? Who wrote them? Were they reviewed? Do you have people review these for you? What is, what's the scoop? Maybe, Dr. Twaddle, you could take that. Well, I, I'll start and, I, and have my wonderful colleague chime in because um, Betty and I have had opportunity, particularly Betty, to be involved in all four editions. So I was part of the initial um, creation of the guidelines back in, I think, so around 2000, 2001. And those initial guidelines were the gestation of an elephant. They took um, over three years to create and to get to publication. Betty was involved in every edition of the guidelines as they have grown and become more robust. This edition, we were asked to uh, initially, interestingly, look at community-based guidelines. And what we realized after our summit, uh, we had a wonderful summit in uh, Chicago in June of 2017, where we convened stakeholders to speak to what the guidelines had been for them thus far as we thought about where we needed to take them. And what we realized that is that this isn't about a setting of care. This is about the person receiving the care and those who love and care for them. So it's mm -hmm. the, this is about the seriously ill person regardless of the setting of care and creating continuity across all sites of care. Mm -hmm. Betty, you want to add anything to that? Yes, I think um, I, I had the privilege of being the co-chair for each of the four editions. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you that when I, you know, was first contacted back 
about the year 2000 to say, would you co-chair this new thing, uh, you know, that's going to be called the National Consensus Project to create national guidelines. My first question was, what? You know, why do we need that? Um, but, you know, through the help of my colleagues, I quickly realized, of course we need this because we really do need to define the field and we really do need to set the bar um, so that the nationally, you know, that patients, again, it's always goes back to what do our patients need? And our patients across this country need reliably good care. And mm -hmm. so every edition of the guideline, and of course, you know, we are a rapidly evolving field. Uh, you know, Martha and I both are testaments to the fact that we started our careers at a time where people still couldn't pronounce the word hospice. And there were, yeah. you know, none in many states and literally a handful across the country. And the word palliative care did not exist in our vocabulary. There was no such thing. Mm -hmm. And so when we say defining the field, we mean defining the field. And, <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of wonderful things. One of the things I most appreciate is that from the time of the very first edition, our guidelines are interdisciplinary. We have mm -hmm. always had at the table, you know, the many professions who serve patients and families. And yes, this is, you know, over now these 19 years, we've had four editions of the guidelines because we, you know, we've needed to keep up, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, even when palliative care first started, I, many of us can re recall that whether it was hospice or palliative care, easily 90% of the patients we were serving had cancer. And then, you know, many of us were around during the time of the, you know, height of the AIDS crisis. And, and so then suddenly it was like, oh, wait a minute, instead of 90% cancer, you know, our programs can really meet mm -hmm. the social need and serve the AIDS community as well. And I think that opened the door to start us thinking, there are a lot of serious illnesses that could benefit from palliative care. And so, you know, I can remember when the idea of serving someone with end-stage heart disease was a very unusual thing. And, of mm -hmm. course, now we see um, that, you know, end-stage heart failure, serious pulmonary disease, that it's, you know, we're just, we are beginning, we are just beginning to see the opportunities for palliative care. And, of course, while we've all been, you know, working away the last 20 years on these guidelines, um, you know, our world has changed. The aging of our population, now all the diseases people used to die from at age 65 to 70, you know, people are living with until age, you know, 90 and above. And mm -hmm. so it's been important to revise the guidelines to keep pace with what's happening in society, what's happening um, throughout you know, throughout our world. Mm -hmm. So since you had that historical perspective, Dr. Farrell, what specifically prompted the fourth edition? Anything in particular or just the continued evolution? There's a huge factor, and that is we are now in the field of palliative care the victims of our success. And by that I mean, um, you know, many of us spent the first several years saying, please come, please refer, please, please. You know, we, there are lots of palliative care people and not enough patients coming to us. That is a distant memory because now what exists is that there is an abundance of patients who desperately need palliative care 
And honestly, even if we tripled tomorrow the number of specialist palliative care providers, if we could wave a magic wand, and we can't, but if we could double or triple the number of board-certified palliative medicine physicians, certified nurses, um, others, you know, social workers, chaplains, that still is not going to begin to care for the seriously ill. So the real impetus behind this fourth edition was to say, you know, as Martha alluded to, we need to continue to define the specialty practice of palliative care, but this edition made a huge leap forward by saying, and we also must now develop generalist palliative care, meaning mm-hmm. if we believe that people with cancer and heart failure and COPD have serious illness impacting quality of life for patients and families, then we also believe that all of those providers who are caring for them, cardiologists, oncologists, pulmonologists, family practice, PAs, um, in all providers, nurse practitioners, that all of those people also need palliative care skills. And so when we started this edition at that first summit that Martha mentioned, we actually asked the question, should there be two sets of guidelines? Should there still mm-hmm. be you know, a continuing specialist version of the guidelines and then separately a generalist version? But the group said, absolutely not. That would be very confusing for the field. And honestly, it's the same patient, right? Mm-hmm. It's the patient diagnosed by their, their family practitioner um, that now may come to an urban medical center and be seen through diagnosis or maybe initial treatment, but the patient's going back into their community. It's the veteran being seen in their rural you know, VA clinic. It's a, a you know, patient being seen back in their primary care by a nurse practitioner. It's a PA seeing this patient you know, in an underserved community. And so it's one set of guidelines, but this set of guidelines now addresses both the specialty practice of palliative care, but also the generalist application of palliative mm-hmm. care. Well, I'm happy to do my part. We can run them all through my master's program, and then everybody will know, know how to do this Absolutely. directly. That would be wonderful. Exactly. exactly. I, Equip them. There you go. I see in um, some of your literature that I read off your webpage, you do have a little section in each domain talking about the essential palliative care skills needed by all clinicians. So is that what you meant by referring to like a primary palliative care person? Yes, Mark, did you want to describe the practice examples? Well, and I think what's unique in palliative care, very unique, is this emphasis inherent in our definition that we are a team, this is, that this is an integration of a team-like structure into the care model. So embracing the healthcare professionals that are already involved in the care of that person and their family, but then enhancing it through adding different disciplines who who can further address the needs of that person and family. So mm-hmm. Palliative care is so unique in that aspect of a team sport. And what I often liken it to is I think of medicine is typically multidisciplinary, and that's different than interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. Multidisciplinary care is we're in our swim lane, we, we, in our role, we perform the care within our scope, 
we document, we may not really communicate, but <laughs> we've got it in the chart, right? And mm -hmm. it's a lot of swim lanes. And palliative care is more of synchronized swimming in the sense that the person and family are in the middle. It's kind of Esther Williams for those of who remember that generation. Mm -hmm. And we're coordinating the care through communication and coordination and collaboration. It's all those wonderful C words. And that mm -hmm. requires the integration of folks who may not have a specialty title, mm -hmm. but they're inherently important to the care of that patient to optimize the outcomes, to help with facilitating the best possible care for this seriously ill person and family. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing I'd really want to stress is that guidelines help drive quality measures and, and a way for people to set standards and say, are you doing this for your patient? Are you assessing the caregivers for strain and stress? Are you providing a, a psychological assessment? Are you looking for the social determinants of care so that we can create accountabilities for those who care for this oftentimes vulnerable population? Mm -hmm. I love your analogy of the swim lane versus the synchronized swimming. That's, that's such a graphic. I like that. You, do we, you see a swim cap with little flowers I on do. it? That's what it's immediately comes to mind. Yep, yep. <laughs> Since, you know, you and I are 29 and we remember <laughs> Esther, right? Isn't it funny? Yeah. So let's dive into the guts of the guidelines. So I understand there are eight domains. Would either of you like to elaborate on what these domains are? So, Betty, you are so good at articulating. I think you recite this in your sleep. Um, why, why don't you lead off and throw it to whatever to you want to me? Sure. Um, so I think the way that I always think about the guidelines is, you know, we begin with the first domain, which is structures and processes of care. And that is such an important domain because what we are saying, um, you know, very much is that unless we have structures and processes of care, unless we have the, the processes in place for how this care should happen, then it's just all good ideas, right? So, you know, for example, we, we can say or we value, it's important to us that we um, respond to uh, physical and psychological symptoms. But unless we really build that into our system, how do we routinely assess? How do we communicate with each other what we have learned about the patient's symptoms? Um, how do we document those symptoms? You know, how do we follow up to make sure um, that, uh, that those symptoms, you know, that our, our interventions have worked? Unless we have those processes in place, we won't be success, uh, you know, successful. Um, and so we start with that domain, which is so important, and I would really encourage people to, you know, spend time uh, thinking about that. And, um, and then we move into the other domains, which are, are really what I call kind of the clinical domains, the, you know, the real nuts and bolts of what mm -hmm. defines our specialty. And so we then um, start in with the physical aspects of care. And again, you know, everyone, you know, with any sort of background in, in hospice or palliative care knows that, uh, you know, a hallmark of our field um, really is um, taking care of patient symptoms. It's the distressing part, you know, a very distressing part of their illness. Um, 
And then we, but again, because we are palliative care, then, you know, the defining part of, of us is that we care more than just physical symptoms, that we care for the whole person. And mm-hmm. so we then move into the domain of um, the psychological and psychiatric aspects of care. Um, and there's some wonderful, wonderful content in these, uh, this edition, and I would strongly encourage every social worker or everyone who works with a social worker to spend a lot of time looking at this domain because domain three in this fourth edition we, and throughout, we have added a lot more detail about the critical role of social workers yes. uh, in our field with um, assessing mental health needs and mm-hmm. emotional needs and, and really being... Um, you know, at the forefront of, of those issues. Um, and to jump in, Betty, you know, yep. that, that we are really, I think, increasingly in healthcare appreciate the social determinants of health, that yes. where a person lives and who is helping them receive care will affect the outcome. And so by having these different domains as well, it also reinforces that one person can't do all this. Again, if you're going to address the holistic needs of a person and family who is seriously ill and you're going to address all these domains, it's going to take a team to do that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's that leads directly, yeah, directly into the fourth domain, which is social aspects of care. And the social aspects links, you know, the things Martha was just alluding to, and also focuses a lot on the family. Um, mm-hmm. As Martha said earlier in the call, part of the definition of serious illness is not only the patient who's being impacted by a disease, but serious illness is also defined as as instances where the family is, you know, very stressed by the illness. So Mm -hmm. it fits well that the fourth domain is social aspects, a lot of emphasis on family. The fifth domain is spiritual, religious, and existential aspects of care. And this is uh, one of the domains that, uh, you know, I have been most uh, committed to and I feel we have such an opportunity through these guidelines because, again, you know, it all goes back to our roots in hospice from the first days of hospice, you know, Dame Cicely Saunders and all of the early leaders in our field said people are spiritual beings and uh, some of our patients happen to be religious, but, but everyone, you know, is a spiritual being. And so if we truly provide whole person care, then we will also pay attention to the spiritual, religious, and existential aspects. So mm-hmm. domain five, in this version of the guidelines, we also emphasize very much um, that the chaplain is not the only person who should be concerned about spiritual care. Yeah. Every member, right? Yeah. This is the synchronized swimming that Martha just talked about, right? <laughs> yeah. Don't stay in your lane and say, I'm the nurse, and the chaplain will take care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is the synchronized swimming of palliative care, that how can we all, you know, so often I could give you a thousand examples. The, the patient that's new to the service has just said, Absolutely not. Don't call the chaplain um, for the hundreds of reasons that we know. And then, and we're going to respect that. We are not going to call in the chaplain today. We're going to take the opportunities to continue to let the patient know about the role of our chaplain. But what this means is that the social worker is going to see the patient tomorrow. And because that social worker knows 
that this is a patient that has declined chaplaincy, then the social worker has the great opportunity to explore with the patient what is the meaning of their life, what are they most proud of, what is their legacy. So every member of the palliative care team um, serves this domain. Um, the sixth domain is cultural aspects, and again, we should all be committed uh, to providing care to the most diverse uh, communities. And one of the things this reminds me of is in each version of the guidelines, uh, people have often asked us, you know, are these sort of minimal recommendations or are these reach? And we've always proudly said, these guidelines are reach guidelines, right? Mm -hmm. We don't expect any program in the country to be able to pick up these guidelines and say, we're perfect. We I already do, do all of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. We yeah. expect every program to pick up these guidelines. And so in this domain, what we probably, you know, what I would expect is for people to say, you know, we actually do a pretty good job when we're caring for English-speaking, highly educated patients who have big supportive families and lots mm -hmm. of resources, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, maybe we aren't providing that same level of care to a family that looks a little different than us, to the new immigrant, the person for whom English is not the primary language, to lesbian, gay, transgendered, you know, bisexual uh, patients and families. So diversity means diversity. It means in all realms of diversity. And so how can we challenge ourselves yeah. to provide superb palliative care even in the most diverse communities? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, the seventh domain, Martha, do you want to comment on care sure. of the patients here in the end yes. of life? I know this and is your passion. Yes. Well, it's where I started. Like Betty said, most of us started our careers in end of life um, in hospice. And many of us, like myself, started our careers as volunteers, not mm -hmm. really understanding at the time that this could be our career. And it's mm -hmm. so exciting to see people who are blazing through their professional training with the commitment from day one that this is where they want to be and this is who they want to serve. At last I checked, 100% of people die. You know, it's mm -hmm. just that the mortality for people is 100%. So every one of our patients is going to come to the end of life. And again, looping back to what Betty said, these guidelines aren't for just specialists. God forbid that only specialists could care for those who are dying if 100% of people are going to die, right? Yeah. We mm -hmm. have to create a, a way for people to understand, embrace, and be feel qualified and confident in caring for people as they ne near the end of life. Now, mm -hmm. hospice in our country has grown and, and developed tremendously, and now 42% of Americans who die use hospice care, which is amazing considered mm -hmm. when I started in the field and in the early 90s, I think it was hovering around 10%. Um, mm -hmm. So watching this amazing growth. And yet not everyone, unfortunately, will for many reasons be able to access that best model of care. We want people to think about it and introduce it and integrate it as early as possible when that person is eligible for that type of insurance support 
Mm-hmm. However, again, some people can't, whether they don't have the insurance or they don't have, most hospices are to provide quality uh, charity care and it doesn't matter if they can't pay. But some people just don't have opportunity to access that type of support. Mm-hmm. So we all have to be qualified to care for a person nearing the end of life and through the end of life. Mm-hmm. And looking at the ethical and legal who are the decision makers for this patient? Is the person able to make decisions on their own? Do they have capacity for decisions? Who's the surrogate decision maker? Understanding, documenting, um, making sure that those aspects of care are very much addressed. And Mm -hmm. what Betty has really highlighted as we've gone through these domains is that the idea of the interdisciplinary team is that every person on the team, regardless of their background or their level of expertise or their, their role, has the ability to screen for unmet needs outside of their specialty. That's what so an interdisciplinary mm-hmm. team is. Mm-hmm. So myself as a physician can screen for unmet social needs and unmet spiritual needs and then grab the folks that have the expertise to go deeper into assessment and a care plan. And likewise, social work, pharmacists could screen for physical Uh, issues that aren't well addressed, and we can work together to get a holistic care plan to improve symptom management. Don't you wish all of medicine worked this way? Well, you know, it's it's really good that you said that, Lynn, because in truth, that's why palliative care came into being. Mm -hmm. So when we became a medical specialty, and I was had the blessing of being part of that early disruptive change group, the idea of becoming a specialty wasn't because, oh, gee, I want to wear a certain name tag. I want to pay for another exam. (laughs) It was because we believed that medicine was hungry to return to its deepest roots, Mm -hmm. which is caring for a person, body, mind, and spirit. If you you read the writings of Plato and those early uh, philosophers of medicine, and there are probably some women who just didn't get good PR, they spoke to holism as the very essence of what good care is all about, mm-hmm. Whole, body, mind, and spirit. So our thought, our belief was that if we became a specialty, then every student begins to have, they have to spend time with us. Our questions and competencies infiltrate into training, nursing training, social work training, medical training. And we can begin to restore medicine to what it really was intended to be. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, that's certainly very comprehensive. And I, I have seen from your literature that in each domain you talk about the six C's, which are comprehensive assessment, care coordination, care transitions, caregiver needs, cultural inclusion, and communication. So that's really comprehensive. So that's here's a my lot question. Of C's. That's a lot of C's. <laughs> um, and if we could... If we could go back for just a second, um, I, the last domain, domain eight, we, we kind of got carried away, obviously, our passion about care <laughs> yeah. uh, of the patient nearing the end of life, but the eighth domain is ethical and legal aspects of care, just to be clear on that, which is, of course, so important. And uh, in this fourth edition of the guidelines, we've tried to also acknowledge that, um, that you know, these are evolving too. Many of us mm-hmm. were around when, you know, the Nancy Cruzan case and, you know, other pivotal uh, cases that then created um, 
you know, a focus on issues such as withdrawal of, you know, food or fluids, withdrawal of life support. But um, again, you know, now state by state, many of our colleagues are addressing the issues of medically assisted death. Um, of, you know, we're struggling even with some daily issues around medicalization uh, and availability of uh, cannabis. And so, you know, what are our obligations of continued safe care? Um, there's so, you know, competency issues become more important as our population ages. So, so the eighth domain, domain has always been ethical and legal aspects. It remains a very important aspect of the guidelines, and yet we have to constantly be, you know, in tune of what are the most prominent ethical issues mm-hmm. that clinicians face daily. Yeah, well, you know, just looking at these different domains and the five, the six C's and so forth, it strikes me this would be a good elective course, but not elective, a mandated course that every student should take in every school, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, social yeah. work, and more. I mean, we people ask me, my co- pharmacy colleagues, how can you stand to be so specialized? And I say, well, I am, but I'm not, because as Dr. Twaddle pointed out, we're all going to die. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this is really important. But here's the big question for me. Do your guidelines go beyond shooting on people, you should do this, you should do that, and give them specific clinical and organizational strategies for implementation? So, so in every guideline, yes, in every guideline, uh, the way they are formatted, it speaks to those operational strategies, uh, what, what, what will happen when you implement or look to implement. And the other piece that came out in this guideline that I'm super excited about is we also gave clinical practice examples. These mm-hmm. are real programs doing this work and how they did this. Mm-hmm. So remember that guidelines are not standards. So they, it, those words are non-interchangeable. People create standards based on guidelines. So programs would look at this and say, like Betty was talking about, you know, we, this is aspirational and we mm-hmm. want people to always look at these and say, you know, I could, our group, our team, we could do even more. And so how would we know that we got there? So let's set some Mm -hmm. standards around a certain project. Let's measure where we are now. Let's implement a strategy to improve the care of seriously ill people and their families. And let's see how we we change our care plan Mm -hmm. moving forward. So it isn't about just shoulding. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's about, yes, you need to. And there is a very methodical way through process improvement that one can continue to move the bar forward and improve the care models. And you include real-life examples and suggestions real life for examples. exactly how to do that. Yes. That's outstanding. So now that everybody's on the edge of their seat wanting to know, <laughs> how can I get this, how can they get the guidelines? And do you have to pay for them or free for the asking? What's the scoop? Well, if you want you to go. get the ring binder and, and have that big tome on your desk, then you need to pay for that because obviously there's a printing cost. But sure. I think Betty and I would both say that the online version of the guidelines, which I have hyperlinked on my taskbar, um, is likely the best way to use the guidelines. Betty, what which format do you like to use the most? You know, I... Uh, 
Uh, I personally think that it's nice to have different formats. Like, you yes. know, for example, I, I do have the bound copies sitting right above my chair at my desk because there are times I just personally find it helpful to reach up and grab it and sort of flip to the page and, uh, and sort of check, you know, myself or check something. But it, when you go to the website, nationalcoalitionhpc.org slash NCP, you will see uh, the complete guideline there free, um, no cost. You will see a PDF version, an EPUB version. Um, you will see, you know, uh, if you do want to purchase, you know, how to do that, everything is there. It's so accessible and very easy to, to then forward, you know, share with your colleagues, point them to the site. And also there's a lot of other things on that site. So even yes. if you, you know, did purchase your version um, of the guidelines, go to the website because Click on the section that says resources, and you'll find a lot of information there. And you know, obviously, once the version is print, it's a little harder to update. But the um, the Gwen Sullivan and you know everyone involved with the NCP are constantly updating the website, sharing uh, news and coalition activities. So uh, definitely encourage people to go to the nationalcoalitionhpc.org website. The one I really enjoy too is um, the you know the online version because it's searchable, so you can put in certain terms and find in what domain those that aspect of care is spoken to. And mm -hmm. one of the things that that we did in this guideline project that was unique and Betty and I are super excited about is a systematic review. So really our field has gotten to a place with its literature, with its research, where there, is a, there was an opportunity to do a systematic review of what we have thus far. And so that article, the systematic review of systematic reviews, is accessible for free via our website. And mm -hmm. it shows that there are gaps, that it, it's a call to action as well. The guidelines are a call to action. There is mm -hmm. always an opportunity to improve. And Here's a framework and a map to help you on that journey. That's outstanding. Well, this is required reading for all the students in our program, and I know that must make you happy, and I'm it sure does. that uh, we're not the only ones. So <laughs> this has been just tremendous. Is there any last stone we have left unturned, ladies, that you would like to share? Super grateful to you, Lynn, for um, making this uh, a recording, this uh, opportunity to come together and talk about the guidelines because Betty and I obviously um, – put a lot of work in, into yeah. this and worked with some amazing people. When mm -hmm. the guidelines were published on October 31st, 2018, they were endorsed very quickly. What was it, 82 organizations, Betty, that have endorsed right. the guidelines? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we so, had 80 endorsements before they were published. And so, yeah. you know, that's, again, this says these are not just guidelines for those of us in the specialty that mm -hmm. uh, many, many national organizations have endorsed these guidelines and emphasize both adult and pediatric. These guidelines are as relevant for pediatric palliative care as yes. they are for adult palliative care. So um, it was a wonderful village and when you look at the guidelines, you'll see the long list, all the people that served <laughs> on the writing groups, the steering committee, the, you know, the organizations. It's, um, it's a great community that we're a part of. That's yeah. wonderful. 
Well, you've had five or six months off for good behavior, so have you started the fifth edition yet? That's what I want to know. Uh, yeah, let's get some, let's get some uh, road work with this one. Let's move forward with this one for a while. Well, that's fantastic. Ladies, thank you so, so, so much. This was so informative and so helpful, and I know our listeners will really enjoy this. So thank you again, Dr. Betty Farrell, Dr. Martha Twaddle, and thank you all for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2019. University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in palliative care or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.